Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of this bitterly cold night of February 4th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And tonight we're going to be talking about some of the near-forgotten wars around the world that receive little or no coverage in what we think of as the media, quote-unquote. That is to say, the Western corporate mainstream media. And what I find ironic and frustrating is that the people, generally on the left, who complain the loudest about the double standards of the media also remain blissfully unaware and unconcerned about these wars that the media do not cover or do not cover adequately. Now, in my bloggery about underreported conflicts around the world, I perceive three basic categories in terms of media attention, not counting the conflicts which are not underreported, like most obviously Ukraine. I see three categories or degrees of underreported or outright unreported conflicts. First, there are those that get some mainstream coverage, but not enough. The occasional story, but not regular ongoing coverage. Then there are those that get almost exclusively perfunctory wire copy, AP, Reuters, AFP, etc., which maybe a newspaper or network will pick up once in a while, but rarely do they do a story of their own. And they go by very fast, and nobody pays much note. And then there are the conflicts that get no coverage in the Western media at all. And you actually have to look at the local media from those countries to even know about them, which, of course, nobody in the West does, except people from those countries' immigrant diaspora, or people like myself who have cultivated this seemingly arcane interest in actually unreported conflicts. Now, I've been following for several years the situation in West Africa, which is now escalating vertiginously to blithe indifference from the outside world. Several governments in the region are battling extremely brutal and reactionary jihadist insurgencies, with multiple rebel groups affiliated either with ISIS or Al-Qaeda under a kind of franchise model, and with mounting serial massacres committed primarily by the insurgents, but also by government forces over the past months and years, and also by paramilitary self-defense militias with varying degrees of cooperation with the official security forces. And uh, these latter paramilitary groups have particularly targeted the Fulani ethnicity. On January 1st, 2019, there was a terrible massacre of some 30 
Fulani villagers at the hands of one such militia at the village of Kologan in the central Mopti region of Mali, the worst of various such cases. The conflict really began in the Sahel states of Mali and Niger in 2012, partly as blowback from the collapse of the Gaddafi dictatorship in Libya the previous year, where a lot of the arms suddenly up for grabs wound up in the hands of jihadist groups through the traffic across the Sahara. But the conflict has now spread south into Burkina Faso and is even beginning to impact the West African littoral states, particularly Togo, which has seen repeated clashes over the past months. Now, these conflicts have long been in the second tier of under-reportage, relegated to perfunctory wire copy. Mali and Burkina Faso are now getting some insufficient coverage beyond that because a geopolitical angle has emerged. Both these countries have cut long-standing security ties with France, the former colonial power, following coups d'etat in Burkina Faso last September and in Mali in May 2021. And both have evidently tilted to Russia, even employing mercenaries from the Wagner Group, the Russian private military company, as it is called, which is fighting in Ukraine, and which the U.S. Treasury Department has just designated as a transnational criminal organization. Before this geopolitical shift, both situations, despite the dramatic body counts in Mali and Burkina Faso, had been relegated almost entirely to perfunctory wire copy. Things have been getting worse since the Russians have come in, perhaps predictably, which is by no means to exonerate the French, who were also implicated in plenty of atrocities, mostly so-called collateral damage from airstrikes. But the Russian mercenaries have apparently been involved in much more up-close and personal acts of mass murder. Particularly this affair from last April, as I blogged at the time, Malian armed forces and associated foreign soldiers are believed to have summarily executed an estimated 300 civilian men in a town they occupied in late March. Human Rights Watch said in a new report, April 5th, 2022, calling it the worst single atrocity reported in Mali's decade-long armed conflict. Quote-unquote. The men were detained at a marketplace in the central town of Mora, Mopti region, during a military operation that began March 27th. Army troops and foreign soldiers, identified by several sources as Russians, were said by witnesses and survivors to have broken the detainees up into small groups and marched them to an area outside town before putting them to death. One local trader, interviewed by Human Rights Watch, said he was drinking tea outside a house with his two brothers 
while waiting for the market to open when he heard shooting. Quote, seven Russians approached, gesturing for us to get up. There were no Malian soldiers with them. They searched us and the house, then took us east of the village near the river, where we found another 100 men. Another group of Russians pointed at my brothers and another man. I thought they were going for interrogation, but they took them several meters away and executed them, point blank, end quote. The large majority of those killed were traders from the pastoralist Pule or Fuli, or by its most common rendering in the West, Fulani, ethnic minority. It is unclear if any had affiliation with militant groups. Mali's defense ministry said in an April 1st statement that from March 23rd to 31st, the army had killed 203 terrorists, quote-unquote, and arrested 51 more. The statement said the army had acted on intelligence, suggesting that armed Islamists were planning a, quote, meeting with different katibats, or battalions, in Mora. The Malian regime is battling an insurgency by jihadist groups linked to ISIS and al-Qaeda, with the help of private military contractors from Russia's Wagner Group. Quote, Abuses by armed Islamist groups is no justification at all for the military's deliberate slaughter of people in custody, said Karin Dufka, Sahel director at Human Rights Watch. The Mali government is responsible for this atrocity, the worst in Mali in a decade, whether carried out by Malian forces or associated foreign soldiers, end quote. This still received disgracefully little coverage, but at least that got some coverage beyond perfunctory wire copy. Now, it is confirmed that the Wagner Group is in Mali. It is not confirmed that they are in Burkina Faso, but it is widely suspected. And accusations that Burkina Faso's ruling military authorities have hired Russian mercenaries, were raised by the president of neighboring Ghana at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington in December, who charged that the Burkina Faso government had given control of a local gold mine to the Wagner Group in exchange for its services. And there can't be any equivocation about the truly frightening nature of the insurgency in Burkina Faso In but the latest outrage, a couple of weeks ago, militants kidnapped some 50 women who were gathering fruit outside their villages near the northern town of Arbinda, obvious echoes of what Boko Haram has been doing repeatedly in Nigeria over the past several years. But a kidnapping on this scale has not previously been documented in Burkina Faso's conflict which has now displaced almost 2 million people. But the government response is also horrific, and most frighteningly, as in Mali, the war appears to be taking on an ethnic caste. A human rights group in Burkina Faso on January 3rd reported that 28 people were found shot dead in the town of Nuna in apparently ethnically targeted killings at the hands of a volunteer militia group. 
the collective against impunity and stigmatization of communities, local human rights group, said the killings were perpetrated by members of the Volunteers for the Defense of the Homeland, VDP. The VDP allegedly killed 21, including children, on December 20th in a part of Nouna, mostly inhabited by the minority Fulani community. The report stated that the VDP appears to have targeted resourceful or influential people in the community, as, I will add, is typically the case in pre-genocidal situations. The report further found that similar extrajudicial executions were carried out by the VDP in the same community on December 15th, 18th, and 22nd, totaling 28 dead. This received no coverage in the Western media, not even wire coverage that I am aware of. I found out about it through the legal affairs website, Jurist, out of the University of Pittsburgh Law School, which I regularly monitor because it catches a lot of underreported stories. And Burkina Faso, going in this sinister direction, is really tragic because there was a popular revolution in Burkina Faso in 2014, which won at least a brief flurry of favorable attention from the more intelligent sectors of the left-wing press in the West. That November, there was a mass uprising that sent long-ruling strongman Blaise Compare fleeing into exile and brought to power a transition government that promised free elections. And there was a big resurgence of interest in the idealistic, revolutionary, anti-imperialist, and pan-Africanist leader of Burkina Faso in the 1980s, Thomas Sankara, who gave the country its name. Before that, it still went by the colonial name Upper Volta. And the name Burkina Faso draws from words in the languages of two of the country's several ethnic groups to mean land of the upright people, Burkina meaning upright people in the Moray language, and Faso meaning homeland in the Diula language. To emphasize Sankara's ethic of unity and coexistence. And he also undertook agrarian reform and literacy drives and so on, but was overthrown and killed in a coup d'etat in 1987, which brought his lieutenant, Blaise Campare, to power. And there was, for a while after the 2014 revolution, a sense that the spirit of Sankara was being revived, and his image was seen at the protest that brought down Blaise Campare's regime, and Blaise Campare would be tried and convicted of Sankara's murder in absentia because he had fled the country, and there was a real sense that things were moving in a positive direction in Burkina Faso for a while. There was a very interesting documentary film made about this period, 
Burkana Bay Rising, The Art of Resistance in Burkina Faso from Cultures of Resistance Films, 2019. But since then, we've seen the emergence of this extremely ugly and reactionary insurgency. And finally, the military seized power in January 2022, the first of two coups d'etat, the second being that of last October, that brought Captain Ibrahim Traoré to power and seems to have consolidated the geopolitical shift from the shrinking French sphere of influence in Africa to the growing Russian sphere, a geopolitical angle which has at least afforded the conflict a slight degree of media attention in the West. But really getting no coverage in the Western media is the current grim escalation of the internal conflict in Nigeria, where it appears that the Fulani are also being targeted and stigmatized as terrorists, quote-unquote, amid the Boko Haram insurgency and other related insurgencies and growing sectarian violence. But the only coverage of these recent grim developments is in the Nigerian press. Neither the Western corporate media nor the Western alternative media are interested because it doesn't have a geopolitical angle. It seems that African lives only matter when they can be seen as pieces on the global chessboard. But guess what? We have this thing called the internet today. And all the Nigerian newspapers are online, and they're all in English, because it's a former British colony, and anyone can look at them. It's just that hardly anyone does outside Nigeria, and Nigerian immigrant communities here in New York City and like places. Okay, first this from late last year. At least 64 people were reportedly killed in a Nigerian military airstrike December 18th at Mutumji community in northwestern Zamfara state. Residents said that many of those killed were armed militants, while others were civilian residents of the community, including women and children. And then from last month, Nigerian government airstrikes apparently targeted pastoralist self-defense militias or vigilantes, January 25th, leaving some 40 dead in Niger, Nasarawa, and Benue states. Nobody has yet claimed responsibility for the deadly raids, and the Mieti Allah Cattle Breeders Association of Nigeria, mostly made up of Fulani pastoralists, is demanding accountability. And what's particularly ominous is that Fulani self-defense militias, presumably formed to defend their communities against jihadis, as well as against cattle rustlers and bandits, were targeted, which seems to point to the wholesale stigmatization of an ethnicity. And it gets no coverage in the Western media because there isn't any geopolitical angle there. Nigeria is pretty firmly 
in the Anglo-American camp, despite some ritual clucking from the State Department about the human rights situation there. But it still amazes me that there can actually be multiple deadly airstrikes in Africa's largest country, and the Western media take no note at all. I had to turn entirely to Nigerian sources to find out about this. If it has even made the Western Wire services, please let me know, because I don't believe it has. I did quite a lot of digging just to get a vague sense of what happened from Nigerian sources, including Sahara Reporters, Nigerian Observer, the Daily Post in Lagos, and the Daily Trust in Abuja. So the Fulani are in a situation across West Africa where they are being stigmatized as terrorists and seem to be facing a possibly pre-genocidal situation in countries both where there is and where there isn't a geopolitical angle for the Western media to latch onto. Now, there's a local African context for this, a cultural and ecological context. For at least a generation now, pastoralists have been pitted against sedentary peoples in local conflicts related to climate change across the Sahel and Sudan, aridifying lands, disappearing water, shrinking natural resources generally, pitting peoples against each other, which was a part of what drove the genocide in Darfur that began some 20 years ago, another conflict that continues today at a lesser intensity with virtually no outside media interest. But this uh, Jihad versus Jihad caste has been superimposed over the conflict, Jihad being the global war on terrorism, which has become much less of a sexy angle for the Western media over the past 10 years or so as the world has become much more complicated and great power rivalries have begun to emerge. And this cultural and ecological context provides the raw material, so to speak, of unrest and instability that is exploited by the great powers in their chessboard for control of the continent. And my criticism of the media, and that includes most of the so-called alternative media, is that they are only concerned about the chess game. Now, how many times have you seen this on Facebook or some other social media? Someone who wants to make a point about Ukraine getting too much coverage posts something about Yemen and says, why isn't the media covering this? Even though the article they just posted was from the media and they don't even get the contradiction. Now, Yemen falls into the first of my three categories. It gets insufficient mainstream coverage, but not none. And I'll also point out that a truce came into effect in April 2022 between the U.S. and Saudi-backed government and the Iran-backed Houthi rebels who control the capital, Sana. And the truce officially expired in October, but the fighting really has not resumed to anywhere near the intensity of a year ago. 
and the UN is attempting to broker a new truce. Now, Yemen remains the world's largest humanitarian crisis, despite a great deal of competition these days for that title. And I um, absolutely agree that it warrants far more coverage than it is getting. But all of the online tankies who exploit the Sorai bombardment of Yemen in an ugly whataboutery game to distract from the bombardment of Ukraine and complain that it isn't receiving any coverage, which in fact it is, which is why they know about it, also have nothing to say about the ongoing Russian bombardment of Syria, which really is getting practically no coverage. It is also deeply out of whack. Yeah, Russia is still bombing Syria. Even now that it is in danger of running out of bombs to drop on Ukraine. The last probable Russian airstrike I was able to document was in November. At least nine civilians were reportedly killed in the shelling of makeshift camps for displaced persons outside Syria's northwest rebel-held city of Idlib on November 6th. Syria Civil Defense, better known as the White Helmets, said in a statement that the regime of Bashar al-Assad and its Russian allies had committed a massacre, quote-unquote, and used cluster bombs on the camps. Russia's media service, TASS, said Syrian forces had hit the base of a terrorist group. The UN Human Rights Office verified the killing of at least seven civilians, including four children, in the incident. It added that the, quote, upsurge in fighting and the return to violence are cause for alarm, end quote. And this received no mainstream coverage in the West. Zero. TASS covered it in Russia, but AP and Reuters did not, to the best of my knowledge. And again, I did a lot of digging. I found out about it from an account on The New Humanitarian, a specialty website for the international aid and NGO set, which I also monitor because it seriously covers conflicts that are off the metaphorical radar screen of the mainstream media. And the raison d'etre of counter-vortex is to follow these conflicts around the world as if the people on the ground actually mattered. Not because they are pieces in the global chessboard, but because they're human beings. For the 20 years of the project now known as Counter Vortex, I have been writing up digests on these forgotten wars with this unapologetically humanist perspective and from local sources and non-mainstream sources. And by mainstream, I'm also including the so-called alternative media or left media in the West, which fundamentally shares the campist worldview of the corporate media that it loves to hate, only with the good guys and the bad guys reversed. Uh, A final appeal. Please support us. I have to be in Mexico for personal reasons for the next three weeks and change. 
So for the next month or so, Counter Vortex is going on hiatus. I may or may not do some podcasting and or blogging from Mexico, but we will certainly be at a very reduced level of activity at best. This is not a vacation, but I do hope to do some hiking, nor is it a journalistic assignment, although I may do some journalism. If a story presents itself, all will be explained when I get back, with a full account of my travels and experiences in early March. So rant on you then, and please don't forget me. Your pledge of just $1 or $2 per podcast on Patreon will really help to keep this voice and this project alive, and I pledge that we will, in fact, resume regular weekly podcast in early March. So rant on you then. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Throw us a buck or two per podcast. Makes a big diff. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance solidarity with the Fulani, and rant on you next time.